Well, today, we begin a new study. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes of all places. Ecclesiastes is one of those writings found in our Bible which tends to frustrate the modern reader. And if I were given a choice of reading it or having a fingernail pulled off with a pair of pliers, well, I choose to read Ecclesiastes. But I would understand why someone might consider the other option. It is not easy reading by any stretch. And it is, in fact, for most people, a very depressing book. Now, as for the difficulty of the book, well, uh, most of that arises from the nonlinear thought processes of the ancient Hebrew mind. And the best way to understand their writing is to imagine someone looking at a statue, and they're walking around it and seeing it from every angle. Maybe sometimes they get up high and look down on it, or sometimes they get down low and look up at it. And all the while, they are describing what they see as they see it, as they make their way around it. If it were the statue of a man, they would return often to talk about the head as they walked around it. And then again and again to the shoulders and his neck and his legs and arms and feet. All good descriptions, all from different angles, giving you the fullest report of what they're looking at. And once that's recognized, it goes a long way to alleviating some of the strangeness we encounter when we read a book like this. You know, that same subject brought up again and again when you thought that he had moved on to a new topic. Sometimes they do that merely to emphasize it. Often, though, they're looking at their subject from a new angle, giving us new information or clarifying what was already reported. And so with a little patience and understanding, much of the strangeness and difficulties melt away. But the book itself was never intended to be depressing. Almost all of its gloom-inducing air for the Christian and for others comes from the poor translation of just one word though it seems that all of the translations make the same mistake. Well, once we make that correction, we discover then a very practical book. Practical from the viewpoint of eternity, you understand. And if we take that to heart, it will help us to avoid living in a way that leads to real depression and worse. <laughs> Of course, if we aren't willing to heed its message, then the writing is appropriately depressing, warning us as it does from going the way of the world. So with that in mind, let's make a beginning. In the very first verse of the very first chapter of this overlooked and often avoided book, where the author partially identifies himself for us, in verse 1 we read, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, some translations use a preacher instead of teacher. And that Hebrew word there is kohelet. 
And many commentaries simply use that Hebrew word over and over again, preferring not to translate it. But that's not really helpful for us, is it? I mean, uh, uh, unless we know more about it, that is. So Kohelet means basically someone who addresses the assembly. So since this was written and not spoken, we are the assembly. Those who are gathered around the book, those who read it, are the assembly. That's us today. The person speaking from what we've read so far is a son of David, and he's also a king in Jerusalem. It's verse 12 makes clear if there were any doubt. But it's from the context of all that follows that we're able to identify the particular king as Solomon, whom the scriptures declare the wisest man who ever lived, with the exception, of course, of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know it, for all of his wisdom, Solomon did many, many foolish things, which brought him and those around him great heartache in spite of the prosperity of his nation, while he was ruling. Much of what he writes about, he writes about from personal experience. Now you, you could repeat all of his follies, causing yourself and your loved ones the anguish that comes from that. And maybe at the end of your life, after all its long sorrows, you might come to the conclusions of this man. But more than likely, you would simply be lost in the darkness and maybe forever. Or you can listen and learn from his mistakes and become a blessing to your family and your friends and your community. The the purpose of this writing is to point you away from the soul-destroying folly of our world. Which brings us now to verse 2, where we are hit right between the eyes. Or or we might describe it as a, a blow to the back of the head. When we read this monstrous declaration, which sounds like a cry of utter despair, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, if that were true, and we believe that the Bible is absolutely accurate, then what's the point? I mean, we ought to pack it up right now and go home. If it's all meaningless, why bother telling anyone? Or if after telling them, why write anymore? If it's all meaningless, why bother with life at all? Now, of course, if you've read the rest of the book, you'd know that Solomon doesn't think everything is meaningless in spite of what we're reading right here, right now. Some things he does think are important. Indeed, he constantly is recommending to us a way of life that will lead to real joy and satisfaction. And it's right here... uh, in this this verse, that we encounter that word for clarity's sake, which we have to more properly translate. The Hebrew word, which our text translates meaningless, is hebel. (laughs) And it means something like a breath or a vapor. 
There is only one other place in the Old Testament and all of its many uses where it is translated as meaningless, and it could just as well have been translated without any loss of meaning as you're just blowing air. Yeah, if you don't listen to what Quohelet says, the teacher, the preacher, if you don't hear what they're saying, your life will be meaningless, but not everything else is. Verse 2 should be translated, and you ought to write this in the margin of your Bible. The merest of breaths, the merest of breaths, says the teacher, everything is just a breath. That translation is in very good company with the rest of the Scriptures. The Apostle James in the New Testament talking to human beings in general, but including the believer, says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Psalm says the same thing in chapter 39 and verse 5. You, you have made my death, my life, the breadth of a hand. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everything is but a breath, even those who seem secure. And again in verse 6, Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. The merest of breath. My oldest son is almost 28 years old this month. And he and his wife are expecting their first child, which makes Anne a grandmother. And it was only two weeks ago that I brought him and his mother home from the hospital for the first time. And he fit in my arm from here to here. The merest of breaths. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. It's only the very young or the very foolish who haven't yet learned that, though some of you are still in the process of absorbing it. This book points you away from folly. Our life is fleeting by, and Kohelet, though you may not realize it yet, wants us to make our life count. And it's important for me to say again and emphasize that not everything is fleeting. The teacher is talking from our perspective. He is addressing our situation. And what follows gives us a little more context to that fleetingness that we're referring to, which the teacher is talking about. And he begins here, he just begins to apply it. In verse 3, Kohelet shines that light of fleetingness on the things we are striving after in this life. And he wants us to ask ourselves a question. This question. Are the things which we sacrifice for worth the price we pay? That is, in essence, what he asks. He feels no obligation to uh, answer that question yet since the wise uh, already know the answer, but he will, in any case, draw out that answer throughout the rest of his writing. 
And you and I here today, we have to answer. Today, we have to answer it, or at least we have to make a beginning of an answer to that question. There will be more to say, and we will, if we are wise, be asking that question all our lives long. But here in the text, though, he simply asks the question in verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He's not saying that we shouldn't toil. He's not saying we don't gain something from our labors. He's asking us to consider just what it is that we hope to get from all of our work. And though he doesn't say it, he implies this. If life is so fleeting as it is, then our efforts should be concentrated on what lasts. So the story is told of a Rockefeller who had... uh, amassed an enormous amount of wealth. He had so much money that his accountants really couldn't tell him at any one time how much he had. And on his deathbed, he was asked, if you could have just one thing now, what would you want? And he answered, another million dollars. He didn't know how many millions he had, He couldn't spend it if he tried, and now he could no longer enjoy it. And it seems that in the end, he hadn't even gained wisdom by all that he had toiled for. Now contrast that with my grandmother who worked hard all her life. And from the world's perspective, she never had much. Tiny little house, a few clothes, a used car. No money in the bank or stocks or bonds. And yet in her 90s, looking back over the years, she said of her life, I have only been blessed. Her efforts were all in the right place. She prayed all of her grandchildren to the kingdom. Her door was always open to people and all blessed her because of it. She honored her king, so the end was only the beginning for her. Don't be sad at my death, she told me. For me, it's only a door opening. She could already see the light coming from under it. What did she gain from all her labor under the sun? You be the judge. I I already know. What did the Rockefeller lose in spite of all his hard work under the sun? He lost everything. In the end, he gained nothing at all. And the teacher tells us to turn away from folly. Our life is a mere breath, but we can make it count by putting our effort not in what is passing, but in that which lasts forever. Our efforts may be under the sun, but our vision must rise above it if we're not to waste it all. To further drive home the truth of our existence, that we are a passing breeze. The teacher paints a vivid picture that shows us how little impact we have on the unchanging nature of our world. Verse 4 is the first stroke of the brush. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. 
grandmothers and grandfathers, moms and dads, children and grandchildren, great-grandparents and great-grandchildrens, however many greats you want to add, ancestors and descendants, ancient people long gone and forgotten, and those who are yet to come, all, without exception, enter this world like an actor on a stage. And when the scene is done, the actor is gone. But the stage remains the stage, waiting for the next actor and the next scene. Three more brush strokes in quick succession add depth to the matter. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. And you and I, we don't help or hinder it on its course at all, do we? Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever turning on its sources. And we can't stop the hurricanes. And we can't call forth the gentle breezes. The third stroke is verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place where the steams, uh, streams come from. There they return again. Almost three quarters of our world is covered in water where we cannot even dwell. We may swim in those waters for a little while, but we leave no impression on the lakes or rivers or oceans where we've been. The earth, the heavens, the air, the water take no account of us as they hurry about their task. while our mightiest efforts can make no real or lasting impact on us. And with one small change in translation of it, the beginning of verse 8 sums it all up for us. The very rare Hebrew word translated wearisome can also refer to the hard work which wakes one tired. And that idea of hard work better fits our passage. All things are wearisome or better. All things are working hard more than anyone can say. The world is marching along, accomplishing the tasks assigned by its creator, working hard and fulfilling its role. And we can't even fully describe it. From the perspective of this world, we're no more than a passing breeze. Ecclesiastes warns us against folly, against soul destroying folly. Our life is merely a breath. But we can make it count by putting our effort not in what is passing, but in that which lasts forever. Now there's one more section here in chapter 1 that will complete our first lesson from the teacher, from Kohelet, the wisest man, uh, who in spite of his wisdom did so many foolish things. After describing the hard-waking and unchanging nature uh, of the stage that we live on, uh, Solomon then goes on, he turns his attention to the actors themselves, and he tells us, our significance is not found in this world. I'm going to move more quickly now as we move towards the conclusion. But the second sentence of verse 8 says, the I never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Nothing in this world under the sun will truly satisfy us. 
But there is one to whom we can go where we will never hunger or thirst again. The place of true satisfaction. This world can never fill us, not if we had the whole thing. But to Jesus we go, and from within us will flow the living waters which bring refreshment to the weary world. Verse 9 says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. The breeze comes, and the breeze passes. As it has been under the sun, so shall it ever be under the sun. And there is nothing new in verse 10. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our times. We live, we die. Things go on as they always have under the sun. But above the sun, our God is making everything new. Above the sun is life everlasting. And our final verse, verse 11, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. We make no lasting impression on this earth and our fellow actors and those who follow us don't even remember our names. It's as though as we had never been. God has engraved us on the palms of his hands. And though our mother and father might forget us, he never will. It is God who is the great I am who gives our life meaning. A life lived merely under the sun is only a passing breeze. We, we have no more effect on this world than that. We will no more be remembered by this world than our, or our fellow human beings than a gust of air when it's gone. Solomon tells us, turn away from the folly. Don't live your life merely under the sun. Though our life is only a breath, we can make it count forever. By putting our effort, not in what is passing, but in that which lasts forever. We all share a common stage. We all live under the sun, but it is just a stage. Home is where we go when we leave here. If we know this life under the sun is not all there is, if we set our gaze upon him who sits above the circle of the earth, if we trust him in what he did for us through his son on that cross, that's what lasts. Nothing else does. Everything else is the merest breeze. The merest breeze. Life without God is only passing breeze.
Would you pray with me, please? I thank you for your word. We know that the teacher has much more to say to us yet. And as we look into it in the coming days, we'll discover that it's a narrow path that we must walk. And yet we already know that. The way is narrow. The door is narrow. But you've called us, Lord, and you're the one who makes the way before us. Help us, Father, to always invest our lives in those things which count, to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.